0: As I've helped to plant Rise City Church right in the heart of Gresham, I have seen God move in ways that I never dreamed of. I've watched as young adults were willing to sleep in their cars just to be part of the movement. I've watched as fathers baptize their entire family, literal generations getting saved. I've seen scruffy-headed teenagers grow into men of God, leading this next generation in our city into a brighter future than I ever imagined when I first walked these streets. This has been the kind of move of God that you only hear about often other stories of other places, but it's not happening in some other place. It has been happening right here in our city. Hearts are being awakened, lives are being restored, trajectories are being altered because Jesus is moving in Gresham as it is in heaven the super epic piano part my favorite part of that video is where I called Jordan Fallman a scruffy-headed teenager because now he's a scruffy headed adult not much has changed Hey, who was someone in your life, uh, either in the past or even recent past, who was an example to you? Like, just think for a moment. Who is that person who, when you looked at their life, you said, "Ah, like, I just want to be like them. Who lived in such a way that they created a whole new category, a way to be human that you were like, all right, now I am on that level. That's what I want to be like. I remember there was a guy uh, down in uh, Sacramento, California. My wife and I lived there for a couple years, and there was just something about him. He was just a regular guy, like literally not some big name leader, not even a leader in our church in any significant way, but he loved Jesus. He had teenage kids and he was leading them all to Christ. Like he just, he was privately generous, like totally in secret would just be generous with people. He carried himself with humility. When we were at the 7 a.m. like uh, men's prayer thing on Sunday mornings, he would just weep over the impact the gospel had had on him. He wasn't like an ex-drug lord and didn't have some like crazy past. He was just a regular hardworking guy, making money, serving his kids, loving his wife, but he was just wrecked by the gospel. And you know what? This guy would have no clue that I would feel this way right now and that we have felt this way for years. Uh, but again, not, not some big name leader, but Lindsay and I for years have been like, we wanna be that guy. We wanna be him. Why is it that someone's example, the way they live their life can have such like a lasting impact on us? You ever think about this? It's just the way someone lives that actually draws us in. Uh, but have you ever noticed that it's all, the opposite is true, too? Uh, like, the ridiculousness of—and it's always those who have no business, like, having any influence on you, that always want to share their opinions with you, right? The people that are like, what are you talking about? How many of you guys had that PE teacher or, like, health, you know, teacher in high school or junior high, and they were, like, visually, like, unhealthy, but paid to teach you how to, like— do fitness or whatever you catch him out in between like classes smoking a cigarette like hey kids you know and you're like you're the you're the PE teacher like what is going on here or like how about the um, the middle-aged men going to the college football game and like yelling at like these premier athletes I'm like what are you doing and you're like bro you like injured yourself walking up the stadium today like, and spilled your Budweiser and you're telling him how to like not fumble. Uh, or, or for the ladies in here, uh, how many of us like, uh, or us, like I'm one of the ladies. <laughs> how many of you were like, man, when I get older, my kids will never behave like her kids. That one was from my wife. She said, you should share that one. <laughs> Next thing you know, you're like, like in the fetal position, 30 years old with like cheese its all over you and the kids have taken over. Listen, we live in an inauthentic age, don't we? We live in a world that has no business sharing its opinions, but they're sharing their opinions. We live in an inauthentic world, but hear me on this, a world aching to see the real thing, a world aching to see the real thing. Ours is a jaded culture longing for authenticity. That's why everyone is so up in arms over the fake news thing right they're sharing a narrative rather than objective facts we want the real thing that is why one of the uh, biggest issues of our day is surrounding identity Amen. what is that deep down it's asking like what am i actually am i am i who i say i really am or even uh, like one of the marks of importance on social media what is it? it is that little blue like verified badge like, like, it's cheesy, but it really does speak to a cultural narrative that we're longing for, doesn't it? We want to know that we are verified. We want to know that we are the real thing. And a world craving authenticity, hear me on this, needs a church of genuine Christ-like character. In a world craving authenticity. We've been going through this series, and we're concluding it now, uh, called Win This City, right? And it's all about, man, Rise City Church, let's rise up. Let's go take the city for Jesus, amen? And that's like a great message. But here is the thing. For weeks, we've talked about strategy, relationships, prayer, all of this really important stuff. But our strategy will count for nothing if we do not have the Christ-like character to back it up. It will last for minutes. It will last for moments. It'll last for months. But unless we look like Jesus, we're drawing people into nothing. The church should expect zero people in our city to call on a Jesus who we are not committed to. Because here's the reality, effective evangelism, it flows from earnest discipleship. Today, uh, the message is called From the Overflow from the overflow. And what we're going to see is Paul here in Philippians 3 is going to challenge us to say, are you just calling your city to follow Jesus? Or can you say, follow me as I follow Jesus? Like, are you the real thing? Are you an actual disciple of Christ? Let's open the text. Uh, There's a lot here. Look at verse 17. If you're new to the Bible, don't have a Bible. There's Bibles. You can literally steal that from the church today. That's like yours. But the verses will be on the screen. If you have a Bible, look at verse 17. It says this, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Amen. I want you to see this first thing, that Christians are called to follow and live as an example. Christians are called to follow and to live as an example. Notice that Paul wanted his life to be an example, and the leaders of the early church to be an example to the other believers. Looking at verse one again. He says, brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. This is a mega theme in the New Testament. This is a big deal. All over the place, you are going to find Paul and other authors of scripture saying this, that Jesus is the ultimate example. Like, we don't follow anyone besides Jesus. Jesus serves as the ultimate example for the church, for believers, and therefore leaders of the church are to follow the example of Jesus. Amen? And then believers, the entire church, is also, while following the example of Jesus, trying to conform their lives to Jesus, serve themselves as an example of Jesus to the dying world around them. Amen? And so uh, if you don't agree with me, let's look at Scripture, 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. You are to follow the example of Jesus and be an example of Jesus. Paul says this, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 1 Peter 2.21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. John thirteen fifteen. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. 1 Peter two twelve. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Titus 2, 6 through 7 likewise urge the younger men to be self-controlled show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity dignity First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.6, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. 1 Timothy 4, verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. You guys see the point here, I could keep going. Like literally, I could keep going. We'll stop right there. Join in imitating me, Paul says. As he imitates Christ, we are to imitate him and be an example of Jesus to our world. But let me ask you this question, believer. If you are not a believer, I am judging you by zero standards presented in the Bible. This is not for you in particular. This is for uh, those of you who claim the name of Christ. Can you say this? Can you say to a dying world, join in imitating my life, follow Jesus, because I'm following Jesus. Like, do you feel comfortable saying that to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to your unbelieving uh, parents, to to your own kids? Like, can you say that? I mean, even as I've reflected on this, I'm like, can I say this? (laughs) Can we say this? Follow me, join in imitating me. So here's the question. That's pretty intimidating, amen? Anybody feeling like, I got that one covered? Like, I look like Jesus? Come on. How do we become people who can say this? What does it mean to be a person worth following? Uh, We need to get it from the text, the answers in the text. Um, Not in the text that we read just yet. I want to go back and get some context. Look uh, a few verses earlier at verse 12 here on the screen. Paul is speaking just before this, and he says, not that I have already obtained this. Okay, take a deep breath. (laughs) That's good news. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do forgetting what lies behind, there's grace right there, amen, and straining forward to what lies ahead, there's striving to be like Jesus. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who, who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also, Listen, being a follower of the example of Jesus and and, and being an example of the life of Jesus, it's not about being perfect. It's about being on the discipleship process. This is the good news today, that you are invited into the school of Jesus. Um, we are not going to be perfect examples of Christ, but we ought to be straining towards it like Paul was. And the way we do that is through discipleship. Now play along. Everyone say discipleship. discipleship. This is what the journey of a Christian is. It's engaging with Jesus in a way Uh, where we're following after him and trying to replicate his life little by little every day over time. Uh, Some of you, this may be a new word. What is discipleship? Uh, Toward a definition, discipleship is the process of growing more like Jesus as a student of Jesus in the school of Jesus. This is what it looks like. Like, are you in the school of Jesus? I'm not asking for perfection. We can't ask that. That's impossible and ridiculous. But the truth is, we ought to be in his school. We ought to sign up for God's academy. We ought to be following after our Lord. And he is now enrolling, if you're not. He is now enrolling. Are you following Christ? Um, I want you to notice that Paul, our author here, actually engaged with the school of Jesus himself. Um, Here's what I mean. Most of us think of Paul, this author, as Paul. Like the Apostle Paul, right? He's even got like that capital A Apostle stuff, if you know all that theology. Like he's a big deal, right? And who was Paul? And we think of his testimony, we're like, oh yeah, even how Paul got saved was better than how I got saved, right? But back in the day, Paul was like persecuting the church, like going after Christians, and then he got kicked off his horse and instantaneously became the best Christian ever, right? Like that's how we think, because you read Acts chapter 9 and you see Paul's story and you're like, whoa. Like, persecutor to church planter. Like, what is this? And and there's truth to that because when you read Acts 9 on a surface level, that's what it seems like. It's just like, gets Jesus zapped. And you're like, what's wrong with me? Well, here's the truth. There's actually, based on not just Acts, but Galatians, a small, like, it it was pretty instantaneous, but there's also this small parenthesis that we don't get in detail in Acts chapter 9. Do you guys know this? After Paul gets saved, small parenthesis, then church planter. Here's what I mean. This was an article from back in like 1992. 1992, uh, Ligonier Ministries, awesome ministry, and uh, it's called The Preparation of Paul. The Preparation of Paul. Let's read it. Uh, Paul said that when Christ called him, he did not go to Jerusalem to receive instruction from the apostles. Rather, he retired into Arabia for a time, and not until three years later did he go to Jerusalem. It has often been remarked that Paul clearly implied that he spent three years being taught by Jesus himself, either directly or perhaps more likely through the study of the word. Thus, like the other apostles, that's really cool, right? Just like the other apostles, Paul studied with Christ for three years before beginning his ministry. You guys know this? That's pretty fascinating that Paul actually takes this time to retire, to retreat, to learn, to unlearn everything he knew from Phariseeism and to begin the new study under his Lord and Rabbi Jesus. And so, I would just ask you, like, have you considered this? Now, there, there's a tension here because uh, the truth is that as soon as you get saved and you see people do this in the Gospels over and over, they, they're just free to talk about Jesus, right? There should be no waiting period between you getting saved and you telling everyone possible about the goodness of the grace of Jesus. And so, uh, discipleship and being on mission, it's, it's not like one or the other. They're simultaneous, and yet, we need to hold this in attention like, We should share Jesus right away, but we should also engage in the school of Jesus. We should also pause and say, like, am I a mature Christian? And that shouldn't matter to us. Um, Recently, my son, Ollie, who uh, is seven, he started playing baseball. And like, I'm not like a baseball guy or anything. I didn't grow up playing. And so I'm like, what do we got to do to get him playing baseball? And my brother's like helping coach the team. So he's like texting me all the gear and it's like, you got to get a glove and you got to get a bat. I'm like, okay. And so, and then I'm like adding it all up. I'm like, baseball is super expensive. What is wrong with you people? Any baseball people in here? Like, I feel so bad for you. Like, what is going on here? I'm like, this is your only year, bro. Like, we're not doing this again. <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> uh, worst that ever. And so, you know, I'm getting all this stuff. And you like, get this glove, and because you spend so much money, I'm like, let's keep this glove nice, right? <laughs> like We need to keep this thing looking beautiful, and so like, we're not really using it much before his first practice. And so he gets a practice, does his practice, and my brother texts me afterwards, and he's like, hey, bozo, <laughs> he's like, you need to take the glove, and you need to do something with it. And I was like, what are you talking about? So he sends me this like, video, and uh, what do you do with a glove? You break it in. take that bad boy. And this guy's literally taking a bat, like, and I'm looking at this expensive glove. Like, (laughs) there's just no way. (laughs) Like, I'm not, I'm not doing that, right? But here's the deal. It's not a good glove until it's worn down and weathered. But once it's beaten and broken in, then, and only then does it become usable. Listen, as disciples of Jesus, especially for those of you who are new in your faith, but for all of us, we need to embrace this reality that if you want to be an instrument for winning our city, you need, you want to be a glove in the hands of our Lord, man, you're actually going to have to go through some stuff. You're actually going to have to embrace the difficulty of discipleship. You're going to have to have to embrace the Lord's conviction of your sin, You're going to have to embrace suffering as a follower of Jesus because the Lord needs to break you in and the Lord wants to make you usable. You need to allow the hand of the Lord to beat on you a little bit, to weather you down, to grow you up in Christ so that when you move out, you move out of maturity so that when you move out and as you move out, you move as an example of following Jesus. Amen. That's how this works. I remember uh, I was 19 years old. And you can never believe this, but uh, my heart's desire was to invest in young people and disciple them. Surprise, surprise, right? And so I'm 19, and I'm dating uh, my wife now, Lindsay. We're dating at the time, and uh, I plug into uh, the church her parents were going to so I could win them over. And... (laughs) Uh, It was a small church, and and I remember talking to the pastor when we were first getting to know each other, and I share with him that I was going to Bible school, taking classes and all this stuff, and he's asking why, and I'm like, man, I want to see young people not waste their lives. People like me, 16, 18, 20, like using their lives for Christ and becoming serious disciples of Jesus, you know, and and I remember him looking at me and being like, oh, that's really cool, and I was like, yeah, so I'd I'd love to plug in, like, what, what can I do? And he looked at me and said, oh, disciples of Jesus, huh? He said, hey, we need somebody to clean up the bathrooms before and after service right now. He said, it'll be like scrubbing toilets, um, you know, replenishing the little paper things, toilet paper, and then mopping the floor after you're done. Would you be up for serving in that way? And I was like, the toilets? (laughs) And I did for about, I think a year and a half, two years. That was the best school of Jesus I could have entered into. That was the best, one of the best things that's ever happened to me. Because here is the deal. The Lord needs to wear on us a little bit. The Lord needs to school us. We need to be, uh, for, for like five more years, I did not enter ministry. But the Lord moved in my life and set up the circumstances so that I was working in warehouses, sharpening knives, I was like, I wanted to sharpen souls, not knives, Lord. But the Lord was sharpening me. And that is how this works. Because effectively winning our city will not happen through our leadership clout, impressive accomplishments, or broad influence, but through everyday, unseen, uncelebrated obedience to Jesus. Like, are you the real thing? Are you walking with Christ? I like the way Matt Chandler put it. The greatness that Christ Jesus is calling you to is faithfulness where you are. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That's what it means to be broken in by the school and the hand of Jesus. Let's be broken in by him. But then I love that Paul moves from like, here's how I'm doing it to like, here's what not to do. There's this theory in uh, pedagogical, like how how to teach kids. And one of the things you want to do is you want to show them poor examples as well. And Paul, a great teacher, actually gives us a pretty poor example. People that are living as hypocrites. Verse 18, look at the text. He says, for many whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. This is intense. It's worth underlining. He says, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction their God is their belly and their glory and their shame with mindset on earthly things. And so this is a part of scripture that you usually like, I'm going to go take a detour around verses 18 and 19. Um, this is an important thing because what Paul's doing here is he is giving us a heavy example of warning and one that's good to let sit on our souls. And so what are we talking about here? Uh, Paul is often convicting and warning against false teaching uh, that is Anti-gospel, as he talks about here, in two directions, all right? And so if you're taking notes, I encourage you to write some of this down, especially if you're new to Christianity. Uh, There are two equal and opposite enemies of the gospel, okay? The first we will call legalism, and the second is lawlessness, lawlessness. And and Paul is always going after these things, and he's doing so here. Um, He goes after legalism earlier in the text that we did not read. And what is legalism? Legalism is anti-gospel for this reason. It dismisses grace by insisting that we can and should achieve salvation by self-righteousness. That is uh, the false teaching and the false idea of legalism, that I can earn my salvation because I'm actually a really great person, that I, I actually need to obey in order for me to be accepted by God. That is legalism. It is a false gospel. And here's the truth, though. In the American church today, if I can zoom out a little bit, we talk in our churches a lot about the problem of legalism. And rightfully so. We should attack legalism. Uh, But as I listen to messages and watch things in the U.S. church, I feel like it's almost like the only enemy of the gospel. (laughs) where we're just like, oh man, legalists, people that want you to obey God, they're awful, you know, Pharisees. And so we attack legalism. And when it really is legalism, we should. But on the other hand, rarely in the U.S. church do I hear messages where we talk about lawlessness, the equal and opposite enemy of the gospel. And this is what we actually find Paul doing here. He attacks specifically the opposite error. So what is lawlessness? Look at the uh, definition here. It empties grace of its power by insisting that grace has no demand of obedience in our everyday lives. Listen, we need to preach against uh, legalism, but we also need to be warned of lawlessness. These are both anti-gospel. He calls those who are walking this way enemies of Christ. Like, this is really intense. And I want you to think about this. He says not that they um, think this way, in this text, he is attacking that they what? Walk this way. They walk as enemies of Christ, according to verse 18. And so, like, hear me on this. This is not like he's attacking just their false beliefs, though they have those. He is attacking this this way of walking. And so, what we learn is all it takes to be an enemy of Christ is living an indulgent life. That's actually sinful. Paul does this over and over. You think this is a blip on the radar. Uh, just giving two quick examples, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he addresses these folks. He addresses this false uh, doctrine. And then uh, in Romans 6, he does so very clearly as well. And, and in the ancient church, what's going on is there, are, there were some preaching that as long as you know Jesus saves your soul, it didn't matter what you did with your body. Like you just do whatever you want. Essentially, they were teaching that because of grace, we don't need to talk about sin. Like, we don't need to talk about walking in holiness and growing in sanctification. We don't need to talk about conforming to Christ through discipleship. Like, we don't need to talk about that because I'm like saved, bro. I've got my ticket to heaven. Like, we're good. Or uh, you can almost hear it today. Like, we shouldn't talk as much about sin because it'll offend new people here at the church. Like, they won't come to Jesus because they'll hear the first part of the actual gospel. This is insanity. And Paul here calls it anti-gospel. We actually have to preach against both legalism and lawlessness, and we need to be warned of it in our own lives as well. Look what he says in Romans 6, 1 through 4. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk, there's our word, in newness of life. Listen, you know the number one reason that people um, say they don't believe in Jesus is because of hypocritical followers of Jesus. May we be warned by warnings like this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls this idea of lawlessness cheap grace. Anyone who says they preach the gospel but embraces or demonstrates lawlessness is preaching with their life or their doctrine cheap grace. This is how he puts it. Cheap grace is preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. He goes on to talk about true biblical grace in this way. He calls it costly grace. Uh, looking again, it says, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Charles Spurgeon, uh, greatest preacher who ever lived in my opinion, he actually argued that leaders in the church who lead ungodly lives are the worst enemy of the gospel of Christ. That's not me, that's Spurgeon, okay? Like like people like me who lead consistently ungodly lives, denying Christ in our actions, denying Christ by using a platform and then harming his sheep, they're the worst enemies of the gospel. And um, this is pretty heavy. How many of you guys feel real good right now? <laughs> the conviction of sin, good grief. I said, we should, you know, you can go around that or you can be discipled by it. You can be grown in it. This, this affects me. Reading this, I'm like, I don't measure up. Like I, I ought to be convicted here. But I don't want you to miss Paul's heart here. I mean, he's just got done saying that, like, look, their end is destruction. He's warning of the fires of hell here. He's warning of false gods and idolatry. He's warning of sin, but don't miss his heart. Look again at verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. Let me pause on that. Paul doesn't, he's not here going, watch out because you're going to hell. I mean, that's true but he's saying it with tears. Do you think his heart is here? I think Paul shares the heart of Jesus. It may have been that as he was writing this, as someone was scribally writing it down, as he dictated that he was going and he was making his point, And then right there, he started to cry right there. The great apostle started to weep thinking about their souls, thinking about the lost thinking about people who say they're one thing, but do another. And he's like, man, I, he's breaking down potentially over their sin. You know, that's Christ's heart for you. And if you feel the weight of this conviction, let me just tell you, conviction is always an invitation to repentance and faith in Christ. It's always an invitation into forgiveness and love. It's always, you know, when people come to me and they're like, I am worried that I'm not a Christian. And, and as a pastor, that happens actually pretty often. I'm worried that I'm not going to have, i have no doubts. God exists. I've, I've seen God move, but I'm worried because of my sin. I'm worried because of my hard heart. Like I'm, I'm not saved. Am I, am I one of the, am I not chosen? Am I, am I going to hell? People look at me, and ask this. You know what I say almost every time? If you are convicted by that, that's good news <laughs> because you would not be convicted if the Holy Spirit weren't beckoning. You'd have hardness of heart. Soften your heart today. And respond to this. Uh, Let me just ask you um, this. Are there any ways that the Holy Spirit is convicting you of walking as an enemy of Christ rather than as an example of Christ right now? This is our opportunity, and even later when we pray, to take that to the Lord, to take that to a brother or sister in Christ and say, hey, will you pray for me? Hey, this is something I need to confess. Maybe it's more appropriate to talk to somebody privately, uh, uh, you know, later on today but shoot that text. Say, hey, can we get coffee? I'm struggling right now. And I think the Lord is inviting me into more. Amen? Amen. Well, he doesn't uh, finish with this uh, very sad and heavy warning. Like, watch out, cause hell. He actually moves on and he concludes here the really beautiful um, image. Like he actually entices our imaginations in verse 20 with this image of citizenship reminding us of our citizenship. Look at the text. He says, "But our citizenship is in heaven." And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. He's talking about our citizenship in heaven. And he say, "Hey, look, one day when Christ returns, he is going to raise the dead." And the fact that you are a citizen of heaven right now promises that you're getting up out of the grave. And God's going to renew all things, wipe away every tear. He's coming back, and you are one of his people. You have citizenship. And this would have been a metaphor that the Philippian church would have heard and understood. Because the Philippian church was uh, made up of Philippian people, what do you call them? People from Philippi. And a lot of them had been uh, basically transferred over there by Rome. And they were sent there by Rome to be a colony of Rome. They were Roman citizens coming to bring into this new region of Rome, what? The culture of Rome. And so these people knew this idea well. William Barclay, a scholar, says this, we have our home in heaven and here on earth, we are a colony of heaven citizens. That's what Paul's saying here. Paul is saying, just as the Roman colonists never forgot that they belong to Rome, you must never forget that you are citizens of heaven, and your conduct must match your citizenship. Isn't that cool? What a beautiful metaphor. You, if you're a follower of Jesus, are a citizen of heaven, bringing the culture of heaven here and now. That's what you're doing. Um, I, I, lo- I love this uh, verse, similar idea. Second Corinthians Paul, also writing 2.15, he says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. That we are to, as citizens of heaven, give off the aroma of Jesus that we are those people who are called into this work, called to give off the fragrance. Um, I, 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 recently, Lindsay and I have been doing a lot of walks because it's been sunny and all of that. And she super like loves the certain plants. Like she doesn't like flowers at all, which is like yes, like I never buy flowers. So that's other things like chocolate. So, <clears throat> but. Um, but, she, but there's this plant out there, and it has a certain smell, and it's like the one plant she likes. And wherever we are, she smells it, she's like, stop. Stop right now. And I'm like, what is it? And she's like, come smell this plant. And so we're sitting there like weirdos, just <laughs> sniffing some neighbor's plant, and they're like, what's going on here? <laughs> Plants give off aroma in a specific season, spring, right? And the whole idea is they give off this aroma because something new is happening. Because there's this new birth thing going on. Creation is being like reawakened. Listen, in the same way, we as followers of Jesus, our lives get to be an aroma. Speak of the culture of heaven. There's grace here, you guys. There's life here. Look at what it looks like. Look at the relationships you have. Look at the way you carry yourself when you do sin. Look at how you can receive forgiveness. Look at how you can be reconciled. Because of Jesus' cross and forgiveness, a new kingdom has dawned and we are its citizens, amen. And then finally, I want you to notice about the citizenship thing as we start to worship is it is given freely by grace. We actually learn in Acts 22 and in history that um, you could purchase a Roman citizenship. You actually buy your way out of slavery or buy your way into citizenship, getting all the rights and privileges of being a citizen of Rome. But here in the kingdom, no one buys their way in. As we hear Paul's words of conviction and call to be an example for Jesus, you need to know it's not something that we achieve, it is something we receive. That we are given the citizenship by grace. All you need to do today to be a follower of Jesus is believe upon that grace. Say, Lord, you've taken my sin on that cross. You've ushered me into the new creation work of heaven. And I want to be part of it, Lord. Have your way in me. Be my Lord. But bring about. Bring this about by grace, God. Paul finishes this out with a benediction. uh, Basically a blessing. He pronounces it. He prays it over them. And I want to finish this as well. This can't just be, hey, let's be an example for Jesus. Go get him. Like we actually need to pray through this stuff. To receive it by grace. And to ask God to have his way in us. We do it by dependence. Amen? So let's stand, and I actually just want to read this verse over us. And invite you, uh, if you believe this, to receive Paul's benediction here, to receive his blessing over your life, his hope for our lives even today. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy, and crowned stand firm thus in the Lord my beloved